Welcome to Side Hustle. Hello, everyone. This is Eli. And this is Eric. We're chatting about the game design goals we've developed in the course of our research on the main show, Jung Hu Hustle. This time, we're talking about characters. Yes, indeed. In our first episode, we arrived at a pithy goal for our design efforts, which is uh, a sentence from the big three, uh, question number one of the big three, in fact. And that sentence is, Unnamed game is an equal expression of wuxia action and wuxia melodrama while keeping a strong pace. And in our last episode, we talked about using character stuff like playbooks to communicate the game's tone, even if people don't read the book. So the question that we're discussing in this episode is, how will our character design work help out the effort to reinforce our statement about the game and help to communicate the game's tone? And what even is a character in this game? Like, how do we define what the players personify? Mm-hmm. And what direction, what things that those characters might be doing is is like what we kind of need to be framing all of this in so we don't we don't fly off into space. Definitely, yeah. And I think I've been thinking of characters pretty traditionally, one character per player, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've been focusing mostly on what will the characters do and, you know, what will they look like on the page. But I understand you've got some sort of newfangled ideas about characters and that sort of thing. So I'm excited to tease that out. I enjoy a fangle from now and then. I do. It's not going to be that different, but I think that, like, if we hew too close to a lot of like standard RPG tropes, we're going to lose a little bit of the heart of the genre that we've been looking at because it doesn't conform to like your standard D&D party style game. Yeah, I agree completely. All right. So we should look at our some of the bits that we've assembled and then we can kind of talk about those and then move forward from there. How does that sound? That sounds great. I did want to point out one thing before we get started, though. This was a link that was given to us by Todd Crapper, and he pointed us in the direction of this article that has a really weird, it's not really a clickbaity title, it's just a wrong title. So the title of the article is Genre Police. You call it Wuxia, I call it Wushu. And I saw this article and I was like, well, this looks like it's going to be pretty not up my alley. But then I read it and it's actually a really wonderful and concise analysis of the genre and how it can be applied in role-playing games. So I was really grateful for that. Yeah, I thought it was really nice. I thought it was, I thought it had a lot of the basics in there with just like a little bit of layer of kind of next level thinking about Wuxia. And then, and you're right, the title just didn't matter at all. Yeah, well, and and so I pulled some quotes from this thing because I think they'll help to inform our discussion. Uh, We've been thinking traditionally about Wuxia as this, or the Zhang Hu as this environment of a cycle of violence. And this article teases it out in a little bit more detail. It presents this framework of a cycle of power, honor or duty, and corruption. Uh, Kind of a three-point triangle there. And the quotes are, In traditional samurai games, people who have watched lots of wuxia films sometimes feel like they can't play what they want because while the samurai genre is about people in power making hard choices between duty and honor, the wuxia genre is about honorable people suffering because of the people in power choosing duty, or even worse, being corrupt. The two are different sides of a coin. And then there was another quote a little later on in the article that said, Power in Wuxia should corrupt people, especially if it's unearned power. The most heroic quality is making the choice to act with honor. 
I really love both of those quotes. They they kind of cracked my brain open. Well, the thing that's funny is that I feel like we've come all the way back around to the conversation on Twitter that started this, that we talked about like responsibility and honor. And this folds in corruption, which I really like. And having that like push-pull of power and honor and corruption playing like being sort of the beating heart at the center of our characters is I think really strong. And so I I do, I really like these, these quotes. They just zero in on, I think what beyond the, the aesthetic and the martial arts and everything, I think draws us into what drives these stories forward that we like so much. Absolutely. Yeah. And based on these quotes specifically in the article in general, I, I already had a paragraph that kind of summed up Wuxia as a rough draft of something that could go in the book as a primer for uh, people who are unfamiliar. And based on this article, I reworked it so that it included some of the notions that are brought up that I thought were really cool. So uh, let me read this out to you and see what you think about it. Wuxia, a genre of stories about martial heroes, is about power. Whether personal or systemic, power corrupts. The only way to displace corrupt power is through force. The only way to avoid corruption is through honor. These three qualities, power, force, and honor, are close to the heart of Wuxia. Yeah, I think that sounds really great. And I think that we are going to need to find a way to make these qualities matter both fictively and mechanically. So do you want to keep going with what you've got here? Because I'm liking what I'm looking at. Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that I did, and I actually tweeted this out uh, just before we recorded, I was looking into the etymology of the word wuxia because I'm just such a nerd for etymology. It's embarrassing almost sometimes. It kind of is. (laughs) But wuxia is made up of two characters, and each of those characters are made up of two characters of their own. Uh, The first character, wu, is made up of a character which means foot, or to walk, or to stop, and another character, which means spear or polearm. And so the literal translation of that character is path of violence or to stop violence, which I think is interesting because path of violence is maybe the more literal translation of the two, but to stop violence is the goal of warfare, according to Sun Tzu, who's the most influential historical Chinese figure on the subject. Right. And we're looking at the character Wu, which we've just been reading as like, as just martial. Yeah, military or martial arts or something like that. Yeah, because that's how it's usually summarized whenever you're talking about the genre. Um, but it's cool to see this literal definition tease out what that might mean for the people who developed the word in the first place. Right, that both the, the path of violence has the aim of stopping violence, is all like baked right into that character. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. That's good. The second character that makes up Wuxia is Sha, and this is important because it's usually the character that refers to the person who is engaged in the genre, the, the protagonist, the hero. And likewise, it's made up of two characters, like I said. The first character is the symbol for person, The second character is interesting because it is a combination of the character for person three times. So Sha is really just four repetitions of the character for person. But the way they're arranged tells you a little bit about what meaning is conveyed through that. So this second character that makes up the word Sha, it's a big character for a person, 
And then there are two smaller characters that look like they're kind of supported by the first one. And the meaning that is teased out from this character is it could be in between is a possible meaning, but another meaning is a person holding two other people in their arms. And we know that Shah are often translated as chivalrous person or knight errant or hero, but these terms are really loaded culturally. Terms like chivalry. Chivalry is going to be very different in Europe than it is in Japan, than it is in China, than it is in Africa or anywhere you find it. And it's important to understand what exactly they meant. And I'm still on the hunt to try and figure out what chivalry means in the context of Wuxia era China. But this symbol is kind of telling. It's a person holding two other people in their arms. I have this image of somebody who carries the burdens of other people. That, I think can really help to inform our discussion about wuxia generally, but also the shah in particular. I'm really struck by the sort of poetic nature of that it's also means in between or could mean like between people and tying that back to our concept of the heterotopia of the Jianghu and that like this is a person who is in between and also because it is a larger scale character amongst ordinary people that they bear like an extra responsibility but they also exist between these regular spaces yeah it's like they at the same time it's a description of how they and and to be clear we don't know this for certain we're just spitballing but i think we're just using it as like as a a place to put our feet and then we can we can spin thoughts off of it like yeah exactly we're not chinese experts right but you know it means the person is both in between the oppressed and the oppressors it also means they're in between normal life and the supernatural it, it could it could have a lot of mileage depending on what the what that etymology really means to the the native speakers so I, I think we see like just within that a lot of a lot of tension i think we see a lot of like violence is the path to peace and like the inherent contradictions that are in there. And then we also see the type of person that has to, who has obligations to like placed on them by other people. I, th I really do think that like, since you dug so much deeper into this character, the, these characters that it, we have a little more nuanced sense of what our main characters are like, that they're characters who are on a path of violence to stop violence and they exist in a space where they must care for other people and they exist between other people. Yeah, it's uh, it, it packs a lot of meaning into those characters. I had uh, worked up, this was months ago, I had worked up a description of what Shah are like and the values that they hold and that sort of thing. But I, I'm starting to move away from that because I'm not sure that the sources I was using then are up to my standards for what I would want for this project. But I like what you said, you know, the Shah are people who use violence to stop violence and they stand between people who need help and people who require those people to need help. So armed with this sort of like more nuanced understanding of what we want the characters to be, we need to think about what it looks like when we embody these characters, when players actually play the Shaw and they are these people that have these tensions built right in. So we need to think about if this is going to be a role-playing game, what the hell do these people even do, right? I mean, it's that's the big hurdle that I think a lot of games have to overcome. So I want to talk about sort of several things. One of them, I think at least in my, in the experience that we've gained on the show, that the party structure that tends to be the default, I think doesn't work. 
What do you think about that? Well, I'm trying to think of examples. You know, uh, there are a lot of movies, 36th Chamber of Shaolin, uh, Legend of Drunken Master, where there's just the one character who is going through the story and they are the protagonist and they might have some supporting characters, but they don't really rise to the level of like another player character, I don't think. But then you've also got examples, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, Iron Monkey, House of Flying Daggers, where you do have a little bit more of an ensemble style group. And so I, I think it can go back and forth. There might be situations where you've got more than one protagonist in the band and others where you don't. I think multiple protagonists is a thing that for sure happens, but I don't think like a party style, like we all move in the same direction and we all are joined at the shoulder and we move from scene to scene together necessarily works. I, I, I mean, do you agree with that? I see what you're saying now. Yeah. You're talking about how in the typical rpg framework you've got a party of people who you know meet in a tavern or whatever and they go off on adventures together and they share their story together whereas in wuxia often even when you have characters who are together and helping each other out they're not in the same place they're not pursuing the same goals they don't go down the same paths even if they end up in the same physical space at the end and even if there are protagonists all within the same story they don't necessarily all travel in the same direction and in fact it is often better if they don't if they don't like crouching tiger we have a lot of protagonist level characters that are all sort of moving at, at cross purposes and that's what makes the story interesting so i was thinking how do we combine everyone having a cool shot to play but also having these being true to these this story structure and the thing that's been rattling around in my brain for months that I've been like, I've been kind of waiting to talk to you about it because we've just been, we just haven't been able to get to this is what if they were all happening within a sort of a constrained space and they were essentially like, if there's three or four or five players, there's three or four or five Wuxia stories going on simultaneously that intersect. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so... One person can be on a revenge quest, and one person can be on a quest of self-improvement, and one person can be on a romantic quest. And the thing that binds these characters together are their relationship between each other, but also their relationship to other characters. And normally these would be played by the GM. They'd be non-player characters. But what ends up happening, and I've played in games like this where you have very driven characters that don't necessarily interact with a lot, is you... You just quarter your time. You spend 25% of the time with this person and then this person and this person and this person. And then you go back to the beginning, right? So you're just sitting there for 45 minutes out of every hour. And that's not an ideal solution, even if it represents the, the story that you might see. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm on board with it. Let me, um, let me get to the next part that I think might make this actually work cool all right so imagine a um two concentric rings the outer ring is the player characters and they everyone has their own shaw they are monogamous with that character it is it's a one-to-one -one relationship i play limu bai or i play iron monkey or whatever now in the middle of the table in the in the middle circle are characters that we can all use that are non-monogamous these would normally be npcs but the function that they would play in sort of my conception 
of this game is that when I go and I have, I get to have an NPC encounter, I might have, let's say it's like Chief Fox from Iron Monkey, right? He's, he's a, a stable character within that setting. Well, he might be related to a different character, right? And so like if my character goes in and interacts with, with him, that's going to cause ripples in somebody else's story. But the way to make that more interesting is to have anybody who's interested play Chief Fox in that scene. Yeah. And you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but talking about the way characters are handled and played, I just generally am moving away from uh, role-playing games that have a really strong GM role. Mm -hmm. I especially would like to minimize the work that a GM has to do both in and out of the session for this game. Yes. And one of the things I'm thinking about is that opposed roles are something that I've envisioned for a core mechanic. I've envisioned, you know, warriors showing, having a showdown with each other. And that involves two people rolling dice against each other to see who is the victor. But I don't necessarily want the GM to be the one who's playing these characters the whole time uh, and doing all the dice rolling in an antagonistic way against the other players. But if you have a situation where all of the other players are free to play those characters that may come into conflict with your own character, that makes it such that all of these players have a chance to flex their strategic and tactical muscles against each other in a way that doesn't necessarily threaten their own player character's life. Right. And it also means that if it does come to be a point that your character does need to die, you're not stuck at the table doing nothing. There's a whole pool of characters that you can inhabit more strongly up until the point that you bring a new full-fledged player character in. Yeah. I like that. Um, and then I thought if if we use a one if if we sort of go between like what a one shot and a campaign would look like, that a one shot would have fewer of these non monogamous characters because it would be more about the the bigger characters that are connected to each individual players. And then in a campaign you might have more of these non monogamous quasi NPCs that's that are in the middle. And that would be a great place for sources of tension and drama. You could put a character in the middle that is the lover of one character, but the enemy of another character. So when you get into a scene where all three of those characters are together, the GM could play that role, or it could be played by another character who's just really gets into that drama and wants to push those those tactics forward and they would be created in a simpler way a more archetypical way maybe than the player characters yeah and you know it would be kind of interesting uh let's say there's a scene where both the lover player character and the rival player character are involved and this linchpin character is in between the two of them it'd be interesting if like a third player character played that NPC as a lover mm. and a fourth player played that NPC as a rival. Mm. And so those two players are sharing the narrative load for that non-player character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, that's that's fun. That, like the character doesn't even need to necessarily be owned by one person at a time. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. Well, I'm glad you're on board with this idea because I was, I was trying to figure out how to – how to square this circle. And this is this is the way that appealed to me because I don't necessarily not want to have a character that's mine when I play a game, especially in a game that we're hoping will be as kind of like tactical and meaty as we as we are thinking. 
and like I can put my efforts into learning my character's stuff, but that there's another set of characters that I could go and I can play in someone else's scene and I can have a good time and I'm not sitting at the table by myself. Yeah, it gives you a chance to stretch and try new things. Yeah. And, and you know, and people can participate at a level that they are interested in doing that. Yeah, I really like that. And it it also makes sure that, you know, when you're giving the spotlight to one player, the other players are not left just twiddling their thumbs. Right. I also thought that a, a sort of a related benefit would be that you could play characters of different scales as player characters or as these. We're going to have to come up with a term for these non-monogamous NPCs because that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but that they can vary in scale and power level and still be able to interact because the web will be so complicated. And you'll get all of those like relationship connections where if you're going like, oh, gosh, we haven't seen the full character in a while. Let's bring that character into a scene and have them provoke somebody. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking so Shah is the maybe most common word for the protagonist of a Wuxia story. But another term that is used often is yusha, Y-O-U-X-I-A. And yusha means wandering sha. And so I'm thinking maybe these non-monogamous NPCs, instead of being non-monogamous, they're called wandering characters. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, because they can, they can migrate from one player to another. Cool. So that, that was like the big thing that I wanted to kind of bring to the table in terms of like, how do, how do we represent these stories? Because I think a lot of this will flow out from here. Because we're going to be able to have those single protagonist stories, uh, the other part that I think is related to this is defining – not only defining these relationships, but putting it within a geographical space. Like – I mean, this is kind of weird to say, but like like we saw with Kung Fu Panda mm -hmm. and that we can define places and characters and problems that this place has – along with these characters. I mean, I think Session Zero is going to be fairly intense. Yeah. But I have a feeling that, like, once you got it up and running, that this place would really, it would really breathe and be a really vibrant, like, setting and have all of these vibrant characters interacting in it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I had the same thought when we watched Kung Fu Panda. I realized that, and I even mentioned that in the episode, that the confined space of that setting makes it easier to avoid the... Uh, problematic moves of introducing some sort of, you know, universal, which really means stereotypical cultural presentation. And if if we're talking about the problems of a village, or if we're talking about the problems of a single noble court, we're not talking about the problems of China as a whole. And, and we're not expected to know the cultural details so much as we're expected to know the interpersonal details. And those are a lot easier to discover even when you're not familiar with the genre. Right. And I think that it would be fun to define some problems for the setting. And it'd be one of those things that like, maybe we want to explore the problem of wealth or we want to explore the power of like corruption. Yeah. And that can be that can be our theme that runs through this particular space at this particular time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like the idea of a session zero. Like you said, it would be pretty intense. And if it's going to be intense, if we're going to have to devote an entire session to setting up the game, then I would like to make that one of the more ritualized part of the games mm -hmm. uh, so that 
the voice and the tone of the game is really conveyed through there. I almost imagine a situation that feels more like a storytelling exercise than a role-playing game. I'm, I'm thinking about microscope and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Or like some of the setting definition stuff from like some Powered by the Apocalypse games. The other thing I think that we could do to reduce the load is these wandering characters. They could be like pretty strongly defined archetypes, and that could be a way that we bake some of the setting expectations into into the game Mm -hmm. that we can just like deal them out. Like they're essentially cards, right? Mm -hmm. That we like deal out to the middle of the table and we're like, okay, who are these people? They have these traits because these kinds of characters are in this setting. Which ones of these do we want? Which ones of these do we not want? And then we can introduce more or we can remove some if they're not working and we can put, put some other ones in. But if we leave most of the character creation to the player, the main player characters, um, I think that will like reduce the load. I agree. And I, I think, let me run this idea by you and see what you think. Originally, I was imagining some sort of attribute array for these characters, and it was based on these five values of the Shah that I found in some random corner of the internet. And like I said earlier, I'm kind of moving away from those specific attributes because I don't know that they hold up to my standards. But uh, the general idea, I think, is enough to carry the conversation here. So what I had originally developed is that each of these five values is both a code and a flaw, right? So for example, uh, there's one uh, how, and the code version of that would be translated as gallantry, whereas the flaw version of that would be translated as cowardice. It's the opposite of gallantry. When I was thinking about these five attributes, it's like, okay, well, you pick two of them to be your main values out of all the five values of the shah these are the two that you care about most as a character and those become your codes and those give you xp triggers so for example for gallantry you gain xp when you show courage in the face of danger but likewise you also pick one of those five to be a flaw instead of a code and so if you were to choose how to be your flaw instead of your code it would be cowardice And you would get another XP trigger, which is you gain XP when you prioritize your own safety. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if we've got these five values and for player characters, you pick two to be your code and you pick one to be your flaw to make it a simpler process and to make it a more archetypal process for NPCs. Maybe instead it's just you pick one to be your code and you pick one to be your flaw and you ignore all the others. And it, it doesn't come to the point where you actually gain xp for that but it still gives you a guide for how you're supposed to play that character in the scenes or maybe those characters like generate a resource that like if you pick them up then you get access to that resource Mm, yeah so maybe it's a situation that sort of ties in like that's moving a little bit towards like core mechanic that that i want to talk about later but like like i kind of like the idea I i do like this idea that like we could sort of create a matrix right of these of these different types and like the wandering NPCs would have sort of one positive and one negative. Mm-hmm. And then we could come up with sort of character archetypes that fit within that. And they would go like, great, here is this character archetype. They are cowardly, but they are wise. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, you know, just to cite some archetypes from movies that we've watched. Chief Fox is an example. He is authoritative. He's uh, an officer of the law, but he's also kind of ineffectual he's not necessarily cowardly he just isn't very good right he doesn't have a lot of skill but maybe if you 
get in the good graces of Chief Fox, then you all of a sudden have access to the courts. You can get people out of jail or you can influence a local governor or something like that. And this is this is how the NPC becomes a sort of resource for you. Right. They either give you dice or some sort of economy or they can make rolls on your behalf uh, in order to uh, in order to influence the story in the way that you want. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and it helps you I shore too. up weaknesses, too. If you happen to have the flaw of cowardice, maybe you find an NPC who's got the code of gallantry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and originally what I was thinking is that when you have this traditional party structure, all of the player characters together are how you overcome individual weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that would be fun would be to have them like bounce off of the other player characters and then the wandering characters um, and seeing like what kind of stories generate out of that. And then if you can make your character flip, right, like if you can change one of these from positive to negative uh, or, ne- you know, vice versa, that that will you know do something big for your character. Yeah, that was another thing that I really would love to see in these characters, uh, similar to the way masks works, where you compel people to either raise or lower certain attributes. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of somebody is super gallant, but you make them doubt their gallantry. And so they they're dealing with a melodramatic personal crisis and they're incapable mm-hmm. of acting with gallantry because they're not sure of themselves. Right. I like that word, like that phrase, the sort of melodramatic crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should write that down. <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I think that's great. I'm glad and grateful that you are on board with this idea, but I think it like intersects well. And I think the things that we're seeing spill out of it are really fruitful. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think this has been a really good conversation and I was a little like, a, you know, I teased it at the beginning. I was like, oh, where's he going to go with this? But your thoughts are right on the money with a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about. So that's really great. It's almost like we've been podcasting for a long time together. Yeah, almost. <laughs> One thing we haven't discussed yet is how scale is going to work for these characters. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think that with this sort of concentric ring style, I think playing... I think there's room to play with scales, different scales for like the player characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's totally fine for um, one person to be Li Mubai and someone else to be, you know, Ren or, you know, some of these other characters. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, um, I want to talk about a tweet that I saw a few months ago from Rob mm-hmm. Donahue. Rob was on Twitter and he was brainstorming this idea about advancement particularly asymmetric advancement right he wanted he he posited this idea where players could play characters of different levels in the same party in a way that wouldn't break the game and the real meat of what i grabbed onto while he was talking was he gave an example Dave really wants to play an old sensei type, so he's going to start at level 7. Yes, I know that's way beefier than any of the rest of you, but he's going to get no advancement, and part of the point of things is that you will surpass him. Does that work? He gives another example. Want to solve the Han Solo-Luke Skywalker problem? More capable characters start at a higher level, but they cap advancement. So you start at 2, you cap at 9. You start at 3, you cap at 8. You start at 4, you cap at 7, and so on. So only the zero to hero can get to level 10 and kick Jabba's ass. I love that idea. I think that's 
really cool and it's a nice elegant solution to the problem of having both Lee Mubai and Master Bo in the same story. Yeah, it's part of it. I think when we get to our core mechanic, I think we're going to see that this there's just so much undefined right now. Like we don't even know if like level is a proper way of thinking about this. Right. So we've got a couple other points here that I think are I think are also relevant to thinking about like combinations of high and low scale characters. Mm-hmm. In that low scale characters are weak, they have greater freedom of action, and their consequences are less severe when they blow back on them. Uh, whereas high scale characters are very powerful, but they have a limited range with which they can act. And if something goes wrong, it goes wrong very badly. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to the description that we had earlier, you know, from this article um, about comparing wuxia and samurai genres. You know, the wuxia genre is about honorable people suffering because of the people in power choosing duty or even worse, being corrupt. And power in wuxia should corrupt people, especially if it's unearned power. And the most heroic quality is making the choice to act with honor. So we think about a character who has more power as a character who's tempted toward greater corruption. And the only way that they can avoid falling prey to that drive toward corruption is to act with honor. Uh, if we talk about this in terms of scale, it's that the characters with a higher scale, they're limited in their actions because their actions are so powerful that if they do the wrong thing, the corruption they gain from that will overwhelm them and they'll fall and all of a sudden they'll be bad guys. The only option they have is, you know, a lower scale character has seven or eight different honorable courses of action, whereas the higher scale character has only one or two. And if they don't do that, then they have to take the the corruption hit and they come closer to, you know, becoming poisoned and turning against everyone. Yeah, or maybe they swap like some of their more free actions for corruption actions mm-hmm. that they have available to them but that carry um, basically permanent consequences. And so you technically always have the same sort of spread of choices, but the choices that you have, they change tone, right? Like if when you're a low-scale character, you have all of these options, none of them are very powerful, and they're all reasonably honorable. But as you get more power, the only way to be free in your actions is to be corrupt. And so there, are, there is a limited suite of things that you can do that is honorable, but you do have, like, you technically have access to this stuff, all of, all of these extra free actions all of the time, but they carry that extra weight. Yeah, I like that. So it's the case that anybody can do anything all the time. It's just when you're at a higher scale, the consequences of acting with freedom are greater. Like, for example, a lower scale character might have any number of reasons why they should lie in this moment to get what they want. And it's forgivable because their actions can only accomplish so much. They can only do so much by lying. But a high scale character, if they lie, they can really abuse that power. And in so doing, they come closer to falling. Right. And I think that would that would keep that tension of like in iron monkey when we saw the fallen monk Mm -hmm. he had that that he had complete freedom of action and that high scale but all of his actions were they were corrupt Mm -hmm. and eventually like his corruption 
piled on enough that Iron Monkey was able to defeat him. Yeah, we see the same thing in the villain from uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine. Like we said, he was a slasher-style villain. They could only defeat him by whittling away little by little, and he clearly had a huge scale, but he also was just purely bent on revenge and not at all interested in its effect on the people around him. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe maybe there are ways to like attack attack corrupt actions that will eliminate them, um, but that person still like remains corrupt. Like that corruption doesn't go anywhere. They don't get purified by that happening, um, but it gives the heroes a chance to have an upper hand on them. Yeah, I like that. I do want to talk about one thing in regards to scale. I've been thinking about scale in terms of levels and items and things like that that might boost your scale or temporarily lower it or whatever. And I was reading this website called Wuxia World, which is actually a really nice resource. They have a lot of translated Wuxia fiction, and they also, I'm pretty sure, have some fan fiction there. But their FAQ section and their glossary are really helpful for a quick understanding of the genre. And they have a a definition for level or power or whatever. And it's a term that's used in wuxia fiction to refer to how powerful a particular sha is. And one of the things that stuck out to me is that they said that there's often these, these talks about levels or rank or whatever are often framed in units of nine. Uh, nine being a pretty sacred or auspicious number in Chinese culture. And I was looking into it and I was like, oh, hey, well, what would it look like? Okay, so 36 is four sets of nine. <laughs> if there were four tiers of power, how would we map those? So the very lowest one would be something like Ip Man. And these people are just purely normal humans who have no special powers. They just happen to be extremely skilled. And then we've got the tier two would be Iron Monkey or something. And they can jump and they can they can flit around like that, but they're also still not super powered. Tier three would be like Limu Bai and Crouching Tiger. He's got that crazy blade magic stuff. And then tier four would be like Legend of Zoo, uh, people who are immortal and whatever. And that gives you four discrete tiers, so you can tell four discrete kinds of stories But then within those tiers, you still have some play where you can be, oh, well, my scale's higher than yours, uh, so I'm going to beat you in this fight. Oh, but you have access to this super powerful magic weapon thing? Okay, well, then your scale is temporarily boosted above mine. And so it gives you that give and take, that push and pull between characters while still keeping things on a more or less balanced playing field. Yeah, uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, That's something that's... uh, I, I, I certainly find the number play appealing uh, and that it could sort of fold in the the mechanics that we want with the setting that we want. And um, yeah, I'll have to think about it for a while because I do, I do kind of like that like gradation or maybe within those, those nine points within a, within a scale level is like particular, skills or subsets or types of things that you can do i don't know it's something i'll have to think about i hadn't but but i think it's it, i think it's a an idea that we should place in there i like that four level thing like technically there's five because there's probably a level zero but those people don't really they can't really affect much like it's your responsibility as a as a player character they're kind of the commoner level character and that might be a player character but they're they're not 
necessarily Shaw. Right. They don't have the ability to affect the world in like a meaningful way yeah. beyond themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that would work. And I think that that will give us like a way to talk about it. But like maybe there's a way that we can break those into like chambers, like what we were talking about, like sets of skills. For sure. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I don't imagine them being traditional character levels like your right. average RPG. I imagine them being something that's more fluid than that, more of a sliding scale. But it gives us an opportunity to talk about characters who are more or less powerful than each other. Mm hmm. Yeah. But, you know, great. you said that you wanted some time to think about that, and I, I think that's great. I've got a lot of ideas from this to think about, too. So it sounds like we should probably point ourselves toward the end of this particular discussion. Sounds good. Sounds good. This has been really fruitful. I'm really glad to get back to this. Likewise, yeah. And I know um, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about a core mechanic, and I'm hoping to find something at least that we can start to write some stuff for playtest purposes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, maybe we build a character sheet that's just like a mock-up. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, well, everybody, thanks for listening. And remember to make your kung fu stronger. Thanks for listening. You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or at his website, MythicGazetteer.com. And you can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, DogPoweredVehicle.com. Or you can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter, jianghuhustle at gmail.com for email, and on the Misdirected Mark website. This show is a proud member of the Misdirected Mark Network.